Welcome to a very special edition of the Let's Run Track.com Track Talk Podcast, the post-2020 U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials Podcast. This one is going to be one you probably want to replay. What a race. What excitement. Every four years, the U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials deliver. We're also going to talk a little bit Tokyo Marathon, maybe even Bowerman Track Club in Boston University. But most of this show will be about the 2020 U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials where, folks, the most important thing of all has happened. The Let's Run.com jinx is over. What do you mean by that, Robert? You know, people talk about the Sports Illustrated jinx. If you're on the cover of Sports Illustrated or if you're on the cover of Madden, you don't normally have a good showing. But guess who won the 2020 U.S. Olympic Marathon women's race? No other than Hoka One One's Alephine Tulenbach. And guess what? I interviewed her right before the podcast, folks. This really is going to be another coronation show for yours truly because the way I see it, this is Let's Run.com co-founder Robert Johnson. These trials were a complete vindication for me and my view on distance running. Everything I said about the trials came to be true. And also, as an added cherry on top, Alephine Tulemuk, the woman I interviewed, won it all. Robert, I'm going to give you some credit for some of the things that you said in our trials preview podcast, but I'm also going to hold you accountable. How many Olympians on each side did you correct predictly? Sorry, did you predict correctly? In the Let's Run.com running warehouse prediction contest, I picked two correctly, the same number as the man who won the contest. All right, 33%. So, you know, whatever victory lap you're going to go on on this podcast, let's just remember this is a man who got, he went one for three in both races and is going to claim he knows everything and is right about everything. Just Let's just get that on the record. John, the loyal listeners of this show, and we, apparently there's thousands of you. Weldon and John, we can talk about this later. I heard you guys are being swarmed by fans of the podcast. Did anyone ask you guys for autographs? Autographs are out, Robert. It's all about the selfie these days. Selfies with the fans? Yeah. Yeah, yeah we took a few selfies. And apparently there's a, a, a number of children, teenagers, we're going to try to cut down on the cussing. Thank you for listening, as always. But let's not talk about... How how Let's Run.com, this was a victory for Rojo or Let's Run. Let's talk about the races, all right? There were two outstanding races in Atlanta. On the women's side, Alephine Tulliamuk wins it. Molly Seidel, and it's pronounced Seidel, everyone, just for future reference, second place in her debut. The most shocking result of the day for me, undoubtedly. And then third place, Sally Kipiego, the three-time NCAA champion, Olympic silver medalist, well, three-time NCAA cross. I think she won more than that. She gets, uh, she backs up Rojo's pre-race hype, and she finishes third to get the final spot. Des Linden, coming in agonizing fourth, just denied the first woman to make three Olympic marathon teams from the U.S. On the men's side, Galen Rupp, as expected, destroys the field. Really, he was just toying with them in the second half of the race. It was very impressive. Uh, he completes his comeback from injury and looks like a potential medal threat in Tokyo or Sapporo. That's something we can debate later in the show. Second place, the battle for second and third, really one of the best I can ever remember. Granted, I haven't watched as many trials as you guys or maybe our listeners, but in the end, it is Jake Riley and 43-year-old Abdi Abdurrahman. Unsponsored Jake Riley and a 43-year-old made this team. Leonard Correa, the 207 man, the Olympian, he is the hard luck fourth placer and just a wild race all around. Lots of high-profile DNS, lots of high-profile people struggling. I mean, Weldon, you were there with me in Atlanta. What stands out to you right now, four days later? 
just the unpredictability of it all. I mean, there's two separate races, so they really should be treated, but apart from Rupp, nobody expected this. Maybe Jake Riley isn't as crazy as a guy to make the team as we thought. I think he is, what, the fifth fastest guy coming in. But when he's your team and then a 43-year-old Abdi Abdurrahman, I mean, that's just unbelievable. For the record, the last time Abdi and I raced, I beat him at the 10,000 meters, 2003 USATF Championships. We're the same age, essentially. Maybe these cheater shoes, I'd still be out there, you know? Like, my career was deprived, oh deprived. Well, I, I heard Weldon say this, like, three times over the weekend. If I had the shoes, I would have made the 2000 Olympic team. It's like, no, because everyone else would have had the shoes, and you still would have got smoked. Sorry, man. Who knows? Now we're about super responders and non-responders. Maybe I was a responder. Right. Some people are, are bad at the marathon, and maybe they super respond to the shoe. For the record, though, we need to correct that. Weldon did beat Abdi, but... Only because Abdi let up before the line. So I guess that's a lesson for you young people. Don't let up at the line because somebody might beat you and they'll be bragging about it for the rest of their lives. Yes, exactly. But that's just, it's unfathomable. Wait till you're over 40 that you think a 43-year-old guy can make this team. And 45-year-old Bernard Lagat did great. And also, I, just that battle for third was unbelievable because you got the 207 guy career with Riley and Abdi. And at one point, they were all together, right? Korean never quite got there. He probably got it as close as about four or five meters. And I kept thinking, I'm like, look, Korea has to run him down, like, right? He's coming from behind. This is a guy who always mows people down at the ends of these road races. He's always in close finishes against Jake Riley and some 43-year-old. Surely the 207 10K specialist, the sub-60 half marathoner, surely that guy's going to beat him, but... He was so tired from that Atlanta course that he just didn't have enough left. He couldn't kick well enough and it gets left off. That's, I mean, that's really shows you how tough it is to close at the end of those marathon, how much those 26.2 miles take out of you. I mean, the last six miles of the race were crazy. I mean, at one point, like Matt McDonald of the Atlanta Track Club is up there and it's like him and Abdi and Augustus, Augustus Mayo. Mayo. Was up so there. I guess it was, it was, I guess it was Mayo and Abdi, right? I was thinking career was up there, but career was back. And then he's coming up. You know, I've got he's got 207 pedigree. And Jake Riley's, like, not to be seen. And then you start looking at the splits. We're getting mile-by-mile mile live splits. And you're like, uh, Jake Riley's running, like, 20 seconds a mile faster than these guys. So I figure once he rolls up on Abdi, it's ball game over. And Miles there, and I'm like, well, Riley's for sure going to get second. And to Abdi's credit, he just stayed with him. I don't know how he did it. He, Abby never looks that smooth. He's kind of like looks like he's kind of got a he's, limp or his something. Shoulders are hunched up. Yeah, it's it's weird running for him. But and then I'm like, wait, isn't Career known for kind of like you think he's beat? He's five meters off the pace, and then he ten meters back, and he just has like a ferocious kick and out kicks everyone and wins a race or makes a team. And I'm like, this isn't ending well for one of these guys. And would you guys all agree if you're going to finish fourth at the Olympic marathon trials? Not, uh, my claim to fame is finishing fourth in races, and I was all excited because I'm like coming from behind, pipping people in fourth. That's how you want to do it. You do not want to be in third and then get passed at the very end to finish fourth. Well, I I think if you're going to finish fourth, I think it's best to be like a minute back. You don't want to be Leonard Correa where you can see like 10 meters in front of you, these two guys making the team, and then you're like, shoot, I was right there. I mean, that is just devastating. Yeah, guys, I I, I have to admit, I was broadcasting the... 
Ivy League Championships on ESPN+. Thanks for all of you that were listening and not watching the U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials. I was trying to stream things in the bottom. I looked up around mile 19, and I did see the Princeton kid. I was like, holy shit, this kid was like pretty good in the Ivy League. I was amazed by that. But I'm looking at the – so I, I didn't see like the end of the men's race. But I'm looking at the splits. I mean, career was mile 24 seconds. Mile 24, he's tied for third with Mayo. 25, he's one second behind Abdi. Mile 26, he's only one second behind Abdi as well. So, I mean, I didn't realize until you guys were saying this now that basically there was a four-man split for the final three spots for like the final three or four miles. Crazy. Shocking that he wouldn't get that right. And then I, I heard they gave these guys like Riley a flag. He grabs it with like 300 meters to go. Are you crazy? No, about 600 it meters. It was six. All right, this is my problem with it. Why are you handing out flags with 600 meters to go? Why not just hand them out with 100 to go? Why are you grabbing the flags with 600 <laughs> meters to go? I must not have had faith. I would have been, I had a loser's mentality. I would have thought, I'm getting caught, I'm getting caught, I'm getting caught, I'm getting caught. And then I would have been caught. Said Jake Riley, I'm not getting caught. I'm not getting caught. I'm celebrating this damn flag. Congratulations. Well, I don't think that's exactly how he, he thought about it. I think, first of all, I think it's just an automatic response. If someone just reaches out and tries to hand you something, sometimes you'll just take it without thinking. And then he said, he was basically like the Will Ferrell meme from Anchorman. I immediately regret this decision. And he was basically just carrying it and never dropped it or anything. He was still kicking it out over the last quarter mile, and he's got this little flag in his hand. It's just one of those, I don't know, I thought it was amazing. But I was, as soon as he took it, I'm like, oh my God, he doesn't realize how close Courier is. Like, he's going to look like the biggest moron ever if he gets passed, but he didn't get passed. It's sort of fascinating to hear Robert recap this race looking at the splits from afar, because watching it, you sometimes forget what happened. But mile 22, Rupp is 30 seconds clear of everybody. And then it's Mayo. He's actually two seconds clear of Abdi, who's three seconds clear of career. And then in fifth place at that point is still Matt McDonald, who's just four seconds behind career. And Riley is another... He's 20 seconds back of Abdi. But he's running about 10 seconds a mile faster than everybody else. And then, yeah, mile 23... Abdi, Mayo, and Career are all one second apart. And you got Jacob Riley coming up. And once again, he's now 10 seconds back, and he's making up 10 seconds a mile. So you figure with three miles to go, he's just going to blow by everybody. And he just didn't – Abdi didn't let him go, and I guess he kept pushing, and that's why Career couldn't catch him. But you kind of think – I didn't realize at mile 26, Career with this great kick, 207 pedigree, is only one second back. And he couldn't catch the unsponsored guy with a 43-year-old. I mean, yeah. the, just the trials just doesn't get any better than that. And, like, I think we need to give Jake Riley. I mean, this was – I think he ran pretty much the perfect race, and he measured his effort amazingly. Like, he was 39 seconds off of third place at 20 miles. I mean, that is not a situation you usually want to be in. But he timed it perfectly. He made it, you know, he didn't want to go with the aggressive move. He was like, look, some of those guys, they're not that good. They're going to die. And they did. And he he surged perfectly. And he closed them down. But I just think it's phenomenal. We had five different guys while occupying second and third over the last 10K of this race. I mean, that you can't beat that for drama. Just and It's not like they were all in some pack. They were sort of moving past each other and forward and back. Just... I don't know. That that men's race is going to stay with me for a long, long time. 
let's jump over real quickly, give kind of first impressions of the women's race, and then, I don't know, we can break each of these down in more detail. Well, the women's race, it went, like, the style of race, we talked to Ben Rosario after the race, the style of the race is how I expected. There was this big pack with, you know, what, what they were still, it was 20 miles or 19 miles or something. There was still a bunch of them. Like, okay, this makes sense. And Jordan Hesay had dropped off. It was clear she wasn't totally healthy. But I was like, okay, this is going to be it. And then we're going to see, you know, the women we think are going to make the team. It's either going to be Hall or Linden or Sisson or Huddle. And then suddenly we run off to the mix zone well then. And the TV goes to focus on the men's finish. And then they cut back to the women's race. It's Tulia Muck and Seidel way out in front. I'm just like, are they sh- are they showing the chase pack right now? And it's like, no, no, those, those women are leading the race. I'm like... What the hell happened? To me, it, the style of the race made sense, but the outcome with Tulia Mark Seidel and Kip Yego taking the top three spots didn't make any sense to me. Robert, can you, can you make sense of this? That was the biggest shock to me. I'm glancing at the computer. They were doing a lot of split screen. It was hard to see. I'm broadcasting a track and field meet, but I see Rob get ahead. I'm like, okay, whatever. I guess someone else is going to get second or third. I couldn't figure it out. But when I looked down and saw Seidel and Tulemek way up. The thing I kept saying, where in the hell is Emily Sisson? I never once saw an Emily Sisson. I never once saw Molly Huddle. And I never once saw Sarah Hall and um, Jordan Hesse. Where was Sisson Hesse was the main thought in my head. Even when it was finished, I was trying to look at some results and I didn't see them. I'm like, what the hell? Where are they? Like I just was flabbergasted by that. And was still. I guess I'm still trying to figure out um, what happened you know, to them. But to be honest, when I heard Tulemek making the team, doesn't seem to be that much of a shock. Actually, I mean, yours truly picked her to make the team. You did not actually pick her in your picks. He, he did. He did pick Tulemek. I had Kip Yeager originally, and then I switched her out for 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 for. for um, but he didn't have the confidence to pick her for the win. Other people, the guy who won the contest, said after listening to the podcast with Alfie Tulemek, we'll link to it in the show notes. That he picked her to win. He said she sounded great. He knew she was going to win. Let's talk about that podcast. She said she, like the hills, I was dropping the other girls. And it's like, where are you? It seems so easy. I thought, oh my God, this is big. And then I heard Kellen Taylor told me that Tulemuk dropped him on the 15-mile steady state, which is the closest thing you're going to get to a marathon simulation. But I'll be honest, when I was driving up to Ithaca to broadcast the meet, I listened to the Hoke One One special podcast because I had not listened to the whole thing. I had not listened to the parts that Weldon had interviewed. And I heard... Um, Stephanie Bruce talk about the three of them working out together and she's like yeah Alephine's amazing at altitude when we drop down to sea level it's a different thing and I thought oh man oh the 15 miler was at altitude if only this race is at altitude I'm confident she'd win this thing but at sea level she probably might want to make the team so I was doubting myself thank you Alephine hopefully you're dancing country and western with your boyfriend that's what she said in run- to runners world she would hope or women's running she hoped to be doing that after the race. Well, Robert, you were asking what happened to Sissa, what happened to Huddle, what happened to Hole. I mean, here's your answer. The course broke them. I mean, this was a really tough course. It was really tough conditions with the wind. And if you look at their comments, I spoke to their coach, Ray Tracy. It's just 19, 20 miles. When it came time to move, their legs, would they didn't have anything. I mean, their rhythm, this is not a rhythm runner's course. And Molly, Molly Huddle and Emily Sisson are both rhythm runners. They just weren't, it didn't play to their strengths. So once they got there, they didn't have enough to move. And I think we, a lot of people sort of looked at the course and were like, oh, it's a tough course, but it's 
it's not going to out impact the outcome of the race. The best women are going to make it. And I think it's like, well, yeah, but it's the best that you need to still be prepared to run on that course. Like Molly, Emily Sesson or Molly Huddle, they might've been better marathoner in general, but not on this course. I think I certainly underrated the impact this course would have on the team, on the outcome. You said better marathoner in general, but better marathoner in general in this day and age normally means flat pancake, flat course, time trial type conditions. And this is something I don't know the answer to. Like, you know, is, I mean, this is why I want Elliot Kipchoge to run something besides London and Berlin every year. And she's run Chicago. I know Elliot Kipchoge is the best time trial in the world. I know he's the best flat marathon in the world. I don't have any idea if he's any good in a hilly, in a hilly marathon. Well, I have a pretty good idea. I think he'd be pretty good at it. But, you, you, you know, go ahead. He, he might be pretty good, but he may not be fantastic at it. And the, the question I have is, you know, and, and we had this up in yesterday's article on the website is, you know, what if you're trying to replicate the conditions of Sapporo, was this smart? I mean, I think in that sense, the answer to hold the trials in Atlanta on this course, I think the answer is clearly no, um, because the weather was way cooler, 40 degrees versus 60 or 70 in um, in, in um, Sapporo. Sapporo and way hilly versus probably pretty flat in Sapporo. But I love this sense of this provided a wild card. What I always say about track and field, there's no turnovers. There's no own goals. There's no fumbles. There's no interceptions. The 10th person rarely beats the first person. That's one of the reasons why people love the marathon is because it's more likely that the 10th person is to beat the first person. But these hills, I think, totally change things. But the thing I don't know is, let's say we we, we always ran it on, on this type of course would the same type of runners always do well? Would Emily Sisson always be terrible in this course? Would a Molly Huddle always be terrible? Like, are some people just forever permanently terrible on hills? And that's one thing I think, you know, we, we should have, looking back at our previews, and when you talk to Ray Tracy before and afterwards, John, you know, is it clear that, that, that Huddle and Sisson just aren't good hill runners? Well, Huddle's run well in New York twice. She was third and fourth, and she beat Des Linden in in 2018 i mean it's not like she's a terrible hill runner but for whatever reason i just this course was tougher than new york definitely and new york's normally not as windy as this so that it was definitely harder than new york when i think about emily sisson john what you and i were talking about yesterday was she wasn't that good of a cross-country runner you know, given someone who won what two ncaa titles on the track what was her best finish across country i think it was might have been just seventh is that right? So, um, you know, she that that could have been like a warning sign. Like I, 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 I will admit where Rojo was wrong. I, I said put Sisson on the team. When I heard she was miles ahead of Huddle, I'm like she's on the team. The other people, you know, and, and we can talk about this. Like which person flopping or failing to do well, you know, was a shock. I mean, at first glance, everything seems shockingly. These results are shocking. But on the men's side, if you take big a step back, well, two of the top five seeds did make the team. And the number two seed was fourth. So the men's side was much more according to, quote, unquote, according to form. You know, we knew that Abdi was in good shape. Um, but the women's side is crazy. Only one of the top five makes it. Um, everybody else was just really bad. Yeah, I think on the men's side, you look at the results like Scott Fable 
he ran two twelve. Like he was one of our, our big four going in, but two twelve on that course on that on that weather that's, that's not that bad. I think the surprise on the men's side was really how many guys ran two ten or two eleven on this course. I mean, this race had five Americans under two eleven. That's the most ever in one race. There was also. 12 guys under 213, which is, again, the most ever in one race for Americans. So that's really what surprised me there. And, you know, maybe we maybe it's time to talk about the shoes because I think that certainly had an effect on that, th- that sort of thing. But really, the only guy who I think bombed who I was like, oh, he'll definitely be up there is Jared Ward. You know, he, he finished way back in 27th place. And that result really doesn't really make any sense to me. I know people had said, well, he had a foot injury a little in his buildup and but I, th- I think he was over that. And he was saying even the day before the race, you know, this is the best I've ever been in for a marathon, you know, best shape I've ever been in. I think for him, it's probably a case of what happened to Sisson and Huddle that the course broke him. But for the other guys, I think it's just we had some outstanding runs up front. Yeah, I spoke to Jared after the race, and he was still saying, I, I don't understand this one. It sounded like everything went great in the buildup. So who knows, maybe... Maybe sometimes you don't want everything to go great, have a little overconfidence. But speaking of Scott Fobble, his coach, Ben Rosario, he said after the race, you know, he just couldn't make sense of it. On the women's side, he gets first place, Alphine Tulemuk, sixth place, Stephanie Bruce, eighth place, Kellen Taylor. He said it made perfect sense, even how the races run. And the men's race, Ben says, I can't believe how fast the men's race was. If you told me beforehand, Fabo runs 2.12 and beats Jared Ward, I'd absolutely say he's on the team. He did that, and he finished 12th place. I mean, it's just kind of crazy. And that reminds me, we haven't plugged our sponsor for the podcast. For the month of February, Hoka One One was sponsoring Marathon Month. Marathon Month is sadly over, but what a great month it was. Hoka One, 17 athletes took on the trials. We profiled them all. We will be doing a follow-up with how the entire team did, but hey, they captured first place on the women's side, so thanks for Hoka for partnering with us. We really enjoyed it, and from talking to people in Atlanta, everybody enjoyed reading all the stories, you know, not just about the NAZ Elite pros, but some of the Hoka Aggies and some of the other runners as well. So thank you, Hoka. Yes, thank you, Hoka, and other shoe brands. Look what happens. Hoka sponsors the website. They win the trials. All the fans were probably cheering for the Hoka athletes. They gave Alphine a surge of adrenaline that she needed. Three in the top ten. You know, amazing stuff, folks. And if you need new shoes, go to the Let's Run.com shoes site. Let's Run.com slash shoes. It's like the Yelp for shoes. You can review the shoes, find the best prices for shoes. Everything you need, you can find for shoes. Okay, guys. Yes, the results, that was the other thing that struck me. I, I was, once the broadcasting ended, I was like, I don't understand this. The women's times aren't very fast. What was it, 227 or 228? I mean, that would be like, the, that was like, there was like 15 women that qualified with that type of time. The men's times, 210 low for third. Like that's would have been the fourth best qualifying time on a hilly as hell course, which John Kellogg said would be a minute and a half slower just based on the hills alone, not the cumulative effect of the hills. He thought it might be two to three minutes a little slow. So when I look at that, to me, I think shoes, shoes, shoes. And I'm getting ready to publish an article. Be sure to check it out. You know, I think some people say, well, the men ran really fast. 
the women didn't run really fast, and not that many of the, the women's top you know runners were wearing Nikes. On the men's side, folks, nine of the top ten were wearing the Nike Vaporfly technology, either the Next Percent or the Alpha Flies. On the women's side, only one of the top eight, Sally Kipiego, was in those shoes. So people are like, see, the shoes don't work. Tons of women did it. And to me, that is a huge, huge mistake to be thinking this way. First of all, we shouldn't be having this conversation. We've never had to have a conversation like this, analyzing would the results have been different? Would the Olympic team be different without the shoes? I think the answer is definitely yes. Are you guys in agreement with that? I think if Sally Kipiego didn't have the shoes, I don't know exactly what technology Des Linden was in because she was wearing, you know, I think some prototype version of the Hyperion, but... It's hard for me to imagine Des Linden doesn't beat her if Kipiego doesn't have the shoes on. And even if Des Linden doesn't beat her, there there was another four women that were within, were within one minute of Kipiego. Laura Thwaite was 16 seconds. Stephanie Bruce, 19 seconds. Emma Omer, 43 seconds. Kaylin Taylor, well, Kaylin Taylor was 63 seconds. So, yeah, you know, that, that that's the question. I mean, what was interesting to me is, you know, and, and, and I had this stat is not very many women were wearing Nikes to begin with. So it would make sense that the, of the top women were wearing Nikes to begin with. So it makes sense that their times were not as fast. Um, you know, and there's also a wider gap in talent level on the women's side. But the difference between, um, I think the, I think I said the third and 10th seed on the men's side is like 229. The difference between the third and 10th seed on the women's side is over five minutes. So when you have a number of the top women just not in shape, like Jordan and say are dropping out, and then they're not wearing the, the best shoe technology. It doesn't surprise me that those times are significantly slower than what you saw on the men's side. But the men's side is still stunning. But then it reminds me a little bit of the fall. What happens? L.A. Kipchoge breaks two hours. You're like, oh, I wonder if the shoes had anything to do with that. And then like a few hours later or a day later, Bridget Coast guy runs 214. People are like, oh, my God, it's the shoes. So I see these results on Saturday afternoon, and I'm like, "Wait, these times don't make any sense. How do you explain this? Why would the women, why would the men run fast, the women run slow?" Then I realize, wait, none of the women were wearing Nikes. That makes a little bit of sense to me. And then three hours later, I see the Tokyo Marathon results. In case you're not familiar with Tokyo, ten Japanese men broke two ten in one race, um, two eight in one race. In the history of Japanese marathoning, only 11 men had ever done that before. 10 do it in one race. 17 men overall broke 208. 28 men break 210. Absolutely ridiculous. And yes, they were all wearing Nike Vaporflies. I think 28 of the top 30 men were wearing the Nike technology. The shoes have ruined the marathon temporarily because, you know, for the teams, and it's mainly U.S.-sponsored athletes and African athletes, that are, have a shoe sponsor. In Japan, the athletes have like a, like a car company sponsoring them or whatever. They're letting them wear the Vaporflies. A shout-out to the Reebok Track Club, Boston Reebok Boston Track Club. Amazing performance by Colin Benny and Martin Hare. They both shocked the world and finished in the top 10 of the trials. And what shoes were they wearing? They don't want you to know it, but they were wearing the Vaporflies that they spray-painted black. Reebok realized, hey, these guys are training. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. We're going to give them the best opportunity. If World Athletics is going to have these rules currently as stands, the other shoe companies need to do the same. Well, think about it. This is what Jake Riley did. Is He could have gotten a small offer from a couple companies, but he's like, 
no, I'm going to give myself the best chance to make the Olympic team. I ran really well in the next percent in Chicago. Those are what I feel comfortable on. I'm not just going to take a token deal so I can say I'm a sponsored. I'm going to go there and bet on myself. And then he made another bet. He gets to Atlanta. He sees they're giving out the Alpha Flies. So he takes them. He tries them on the day before the race. He's still debating in a shoe he's never run in before, which one he wa- he's going to wear in the race. He wears the Alpha Flies and makes the team. I mean, that is... Uh, that talk about betting yourself. I mean, that's really crazy what Jake really did, Riley did, but maybe it wasn't so crazy because it paid off. Yeah, but I was talking to, to biomechanist Jeff Burns at the University of Michigan. By the way, Jeff, if you're listening to the podcast, hope everything went well. He took 30 minutes out of his time yesterday to talk to me, even though he was turning in his PhD dissertation yesterday. So this guy is so into the shoes. It's amazing. Um, we got to have to have him on the podcast, maybe next week, because he is really into it. But, um, you know, he, he was talking, I was talking to him, you know, about it. He's like, yeah, I couldn't believe that Raleigh would just put them on without having ever worn them before and do it. He's like, he totally bet on himself, but, but it paid out, it paid off in a big way. Um, but I, I tried to ask Jeff, my theory is like, do we have, I asked him, are there any scientific studies on like how these shoes perform in hills? He's like, no, nothing in a lab has been produced. No paper has been published. And I said, well, what do you think? He's like, well, I think it's going to be highly variable. Some are going to respond more. Some are going to respond less. He said, there's a lot of theoretical things. You could say an uphill, why it would be better, downhill, why it would be worse. But he's like, let's look at the results we've seen in the last few years. He said, both at the Comrades Marathon, both on the uphill and downhill in recent years, there's been some amazing times run by athletes in the vapor flies. I think Jeff himself was 12th in Comrades last year. And he said like eight or 10 of the people beating him were all on the vapor flies. He wasn't. And that's one of the reasons why he's given up his shoe sponsorship. Um, Hokuden, the Hakone Ekaden in Japan just recently where all the course records were broken. They were broken both. That's a really hilly course. There's some way downhill legs, some way uphill legs. That 58 minute leg, that's a way downhill leg. He's like, look, the shoes have worked ex- exceptionally well on, on both the uphills and downhills. My theory was, being a layman and admittedly, he didn't really agree with this. I'm like, to me, it seems like it would help you more, theoretically, in a hilly race. Because what do you hear about these? I mean, never before have we had a shoe that has got so much cushioning. I mean, inches of cushioning, but it's so lightweight. And what do you always hear about the shoes, John? It's like, oh, they saved my legs. I normally get tired at 18. I didn't get tired. I didn't feel the pounding until 22. You know, like the quad busting of the Boston. People say this destroys their legs. I think Sarah Hall said this course obliterated her legs. If she's wearing these super cushioned shoes, are her legs not obliterated? You know, you know. I think on the men's side, it's nice to think, well, all the top people had it. We don't have to worry about it. But I still worry about it for Scott Fobble. What would happen if he had these shoes? And I still think about it with Emily Sisson. She may not be a good hill runner, but if she had these shoes, admittedly none of the other women had them, but maybe if she did have them, she would have beaten everybody and finished on this team because there are super responders. So we have no idea. Yeah, I mean, think about Scott Fobble. He was 12th, but how many guys in front of him were in the shoes? Probably, I think, 9 or 10, you know? So, and if the shoes make a diff- a minute or two difference, I mean, we again, he's wearing this newly released Hoka shoe, the Rocket X, I believe. We don't know how, we don't have testing for how this stuff stacks up. And I think this is the thing we always say is we just don't know. And in before, before, when someone made the team, we'd just be like, all right, they're a better runner. And now it's just, we have to ask this question. We're going to say, we don't know for sure. Scott Farble doesn't know. Des Linden, that is a fan of the sport. And I'm sure as an athlete, it just has to be frustrating, the uncertainty. Right. For now, we don't know. 
because there's been no independent testing of these shoes, but sort of, I think there's a couple of things that are interesting about the shoes. One, we know everybody's trying to play catch up and who knows, maybe it comes out the Hoka shoes better and we'll have to reassess this later. But to me, that seems unlikely if you're playing catch up, but we'll find out, I guess, once scientists put them on and test them all. But for example, like look at Brooks, they had this big Hyperon launch party and all this other stuff, the Hyperon shoes out there. And yet their top pros actually were ran in a different shoe, a prototype version of that shoe that their other sponsored athletes didn't get. And I heard that caused some issues and stuff because like everybody wants the best shoe. And so in some ways, I think the people f- with shoe companies that don't even have a version of the super shoe, they were almost in a better spot because like the Reebok athletes and then also on running uh, the... Um, in Atlanta Track Club, Mizuno. In Mizuno. But right, the um, the on Zap Endurance Group, Tyler Pinnell was 11th, and Josh Izuski was 17th. And from photos, it sure looks to me like they are wearing the Nike Vaporfly. And Chris Thompson, the great uh, British runner, he was in a half marathon with Bikili this weekend. And I think people were saying he was in the Vaporflies. And he posted uh, on Instagram... No post is complete without thanking people. On running have been so good to me. Helped me stay in the game when most said no to me three years back. A great bunch who want the best for their athletes. So much that they went above and beyond for me today. In a tough climate of change in the road running scene and companies having to react with little to no help. I'm proud to work with a company who care about the athletes they work with. I can't thank them enough and I look forward to what's coming next. He doesn't say it explicitly, but I think he's saying, thank you so much for letting me wear these shoes, like to be on a level playing field. And so like Reebok on, like I applaud you. Like maybe it's easier for them because they don't have a competing shoe coming out, but like it's just weird. And so the good thing with the Olympics is, or maybe it's a bad thing, there'll be a rule that the shoes that could be worn in the Olympics have to be out by what, April 30th. So by then testing could be done, but then we'll know. If we do the testing, let's say we get independent labs, we crowdfund money or something, independent labs test everybody's shoes, and we determine the Nike shoes are an average 2% better. Then we just know that the Nike athletes have an advantage in the Olympics or people are supposed to break their contracts. And Tim Layden had a piece during the Olympic coverage, and I only saw part of it. I can go back and rewatch it. I probably should before I totally comment. But like we picked it up in the media room. And he, to me, the gist was like, there's always been progress about with shoes and technology it's just part of sport yes but one thing that hasn't been part of sport is certain athletes only having access to technologies only certain shoe companies you know patented technology that others can't access and if these new rules cement nike's advantage for the olympics i I think it's a bit unfair and i guess then athletes can if it comes out four months in advance and then you're uh, like does new balance even have a super shoe Let's say your New Balance app. Yeah, the fuel cell. The, the I think I don't know. I think Sisson was wearing it on Saturday, but they're certainly coming. Has one in the works. Okay, so I'm trying to think. Alephine. Let's see. Alephine's comes out. And they do testing on the shoes, or vice versa. You know, and like her shoe comes out two percent behind. She's supposed to toe the line in Tokyo, knowing that. Look, it's absurd. The whole thing is absurd. Like, I mean, even. 
people think that, oh yeah, you can go out and buy the shoes. No, you can't. Not if you're under contract. Here's a story I'm aware of. There was several club runners. They don't even have endorsement deals. Their club has this, a branded singlet and they, they provide them shoes. No travel to the race. Nothing. These athletes didn't know what to do. Some of them spray painted the shoes, covered them up, ran in them. They finished the race. One of them that I know of ran really well. What happens? The PR people are grilling them and like, what the hell are you doing out there? Why are you wearing these shoes? It's like, it's a shame. Like, and some of these companies are never, why, why would a company like Owen spend millions of dollars to develop some obscure racing shoe? And take it down to the high school level. You really want to have to have kids? Okay, they have to have a $300 shoe to be competitive at the state track meet? It's absurd. Like, we, we need a level playing field. We don't have it. You know, I, I just think there's so many things that people aren't thinking about all the way down. Sepco says we couldn't go back on this. Yes, you could have. They did it in swimming. Why couldn't we do it in, in track and field? I mean, Robert's story about club runners spray painting the shoes and getting in trouble, I heard about that from multiple sources. In terms of on running, I think maybe the one reason, one, they don't have a shoe, but the founder of on, I've been to his house. His name's Olivier Bernard. He's a Swiss guy. And you know what he is also? He's a former like world duathlon champion. He's an athlete at the heart. So he understands like he started tinkering with shoes. I think he was sponsored by Nike back in the day. He started tinkering with shoes because he was injured and came up with what he thought was a better shoe. And so he's a competitive athlete. He wants the best. Um, Roger Federer is now with On. Like guys like that, they're not going to want to put the athletes at a disadvantage. So I think maybe because you have such two prominent athletes at the top, you can understand that. Whereas like a marketing guy uh, oftentimes might be, or gal, is going to be like, yeah, you really need to wear the shoe. Roger Federer's with On? Wow. That must cost millions. Very impressive. Anyways, I was talking to a top coach. Remain anonymous. He or she put his athletes in the Nike shoes. He couldn't believe it. He said they were running a minute faster over 10 miles. He estimated that they were worth at least two minutes in this marathon. Fact. Anyways, I have a sick child that's throwing up at home, so I may have to leave the podcast early. I just want to get to a few points here, John. We talked about it at the beginning, but... And actually, on the way back from from Ithaca, I was listening to a podcast, and people were talking. It was an interview with Art Bryles, controversial coach, because he did some sh- shit at Baylor and got fired. But it's like people used to debate whether, you know, if you knew high school football at the high school level, would it work in college, would it work in pros? And he's like, look, if you know football, you know football, period. And that's my theory about running. If you know running, you know it, period. Like John Green, he coaches Molly Seidel. This guy's never coached anywhere before. He understands running. He coached her to an Olympic team. Congratulations, John. But I've always said, hey, buddy, I know running too, and this is vindication, John. So let's talk about this. What did I wait, say? Wait, wait, wait. I just want to say before before you get into this, are you depressed, Robert? You as a, you know, you, I think you were a little jealous of Mike Smith having success in NCAA cross country, and he's like six years younger than you. Now someone who's 25, he's almost half your age, has coached an Olympian in the marathon. Does this? Are you impressed or are you depressed? No, I love this John Green thing because this is this is a ammunition for me to, to tell a shoe company, hey, give me some money, give me some athletes, I'll coach them to success like John Green. We can have John Green in the Northeast. He can be my Boston man. I can coach the team, the, the middle. I can handle the Middle Atlantic team. Anyways, what did I say going into this thing? I said I've been harping on shoes for months. Of, of course, the shoes would have a factor. The other thing that I said was. I was debating on the show, agonizing. Who would make the team, Tulemek or Kipiego? I picked Kipiego for one publication. I picked Tulemek for mine. I was vindicated on that. 
I was also adamant that career was a step above Scott Fobble and, and Jared Ward, and it wasn't even close. And then, and I, I now he didn't make the team like I thought he would, but vindicated there, John. And then my other main vindication was I wanted any obscure Kenyan. I, I didn't even know. This is where John had to help me because I don't even know which Kenyans have citizenship, which don't. But I was basically going to pick them for that U.S. men's team. I think that the advantages of, of the East Africans is most pronounced at the marathon. And I think that this race was overwhelmingly validation of that. I mean, how, how many, there was probably the race is probably like 98% white starters, but what percent of the top five was born in Kenya? I, I don't know, John, do you have the results there? It's 40%. So Lena Korea and Augustus Mayo and then Abdi Abdurrahman was born in Somalia. So three of the top five Kenyan African born athletes. And for the women, it was two, so that was Wait, five. Wait, that's uh, uh, 60%, John. You said 40. I said 40% was born in Kenya, which is true. Oh, okay. East Africa, Wait, five. I thought I thought we, you said three of the top five. Three of the top five were born in East Africa. Somalia and Kenya are different countries. Uh, Walden didn't know that until today. Thank you, John. But <laughs> Not true. The other thing is, now John Kellogg was a little bit off on his predicted men's time. But no one's talked about this, and I'll probably have to write a column on this. This was absolute vindication for the brilliance of John Kellogg. That's the other thing I've been harping on for 20 years. John Kellogg understands running better than anybody. So what if you read the mile-by-mile mile analysis, we talked about this briefly on the podcast last week. I said, don't be surprised. Anyone listen to the podcast, by the way, did they use John Kellogg's stats? I said, do not be surprised if the 5th and 6th miles, the 13th and 14th, and the 21st and 22nd miles have a 20-second gap because like one's a 12-second slower for hills, and then the next one's eight seconds faster or something like that. Well, I've gone back to look at the results here to see those miles. And I looked at, like, I think in the first five and six, there's a couple guys up front. I looked at the main pack. They ran the fifth mile in 510. They ran the sixth mile in 455. That's a 15-second differential. Miles 13 and 14, they ran it in 513 and 451. That's a 22-second differential. And then mile 21 and 22, this is an unsaid said thing about this. I don't think anyone's talked about Galen Rupp's mile-by-mile splits. I only looked at Rupp. 459 for 21, 442 for mile 22, another downhill mile. 17-second differential. So basically, he said it would be, you know, right around 20 seconds. Guess what? It was. I think that averages out to be 18. Wait, am I, Robert, am I supposed to be impressed that John Keller can run it, read an elevation chart? That's not as impressive to me. I mean, I, I guess the number, he's pretty close. But wait, I want to backtrack to the point you just made. So you're claiming victory because you're saying, oh, I wanted any African-born athlete. Well, you, you're neglecting to mention that Abdi Abdurrahman, Leonard Kuru, and Augustus Mayo were all wearing Nike super shoes. Now, I don't think you can claim victory here on both fronts. Either it was because they were born in Africa or because they were in the shoes. I don't think you can say claim both of them. Which one are you picking here? He can claim both, I think, actually, John, because everybody's wearing super shoes on the men's side. Yes, yeah, but you. they got beat. They got beat by two guys who were born in America then. If, it's, if everything else is equal, the African-born runners should beat American-born runners, right? I'm not, saying all, I'm not saying that all African-born runners beat all American-born runners. I'm just saying that I was... He's just saying he thinks they're very good at the marathon because of their upbringing. Yes. John, shout out to John Anderson, the 1973 Boston Marathon champion in 1972 U.S. Olympian. I, I saw him up at the Ivy League Championships this year, this weekend, and I asked him, 
I popped in my head, John. You said I can't claim both. I said, which is better, making the Olympic team at Hayward Field coming home? He's from Hayward. His dad was the mayor of Eugene. Coming back from eight seconds down, entering the final lap to snag the final team spot, or winning the Boston Marathon. What? Yes. He was eight seconds back at the bell? Yes. Did the guy in front of him die? What happened? <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to have him on the podcast when we go to when we go to the trials. But I was like, uh, he's like, why do I have to choose? So he wanted to say both, basically. But I, I did make him choose, John. Actually, this is an interesting question. What do you think he chose? Uh, oh. Marathon. Yeah, no, Olympic say, team. I was going to say winning Boston. but Yeah. John, the Boston guy, wins around. He's like, he's like, eh. he's like beating everyone in a race is better than losing to two people in a race. So he preferred to win Boston. Matt, speaking of Boston guys, John Green lives in Boston now, right? Yes, Wolfham. Suburb of Boston. I mean, Mike Smith now has a coaching tree. John Green was at Georgetown when Mike Smith was there. I mean, Robert, it's just too much to be jealous about. I mean, like, Mike Smith's coaching tree is already putting people on the Olympics. The guy's not even 40, and, like, people underneath him are sprouting out and spewing Olympians. And Mike Smith had the men's winner. I mean, I don't know how much credit you give him for Galen Rupp because he was already a two-time Olympic medalist, but he did coach the men's winner and Rupp, I thought he was a lot to make the team, but there are other people who are saying, early in the broadcast, sorry, I rewatched the broadcast, Tim Hutchings is saying, like, Jared Ward's a lock. I'm like, come on, man, Jared Ward's really good, but he's not a lock for the team. But I did think this was pretty impressive. They did this open. I watched the entire broadcast last night. They did the open in Centennial Park. Craig Masbach, he only mentioned about three runners on the women's side. One of them, he's like, keep an eye on Molly Seidel. This is her debut marathon. Don't really know what to expect, but we sometimes see underdogs at this race. I was like, holy shit. Like, Craig mentioned Molly Seidel in the open. I was just very impressed. And then he came back to it later. He's like, remember Molly Seidel? Yeah, she's doing well. I mean, her story is amazing. People are eating that up. I think anytime a first-time marathoner does well. People go, Rupp didn't get attention when he won the trials his first marathon. He was already an Olympic medalist. It's not the same story, but like, oh, she works as a barista. And babysitter for Matt Taylor. Although I read in a Runner's World article, she said babysitting was, you know, the drive was too far. So maybe Matt wasn't paying her enough. Matt, maybe think about the, the wages. Just a joke. The, the, the whole trials, I was also re-watching the broadcast and I was thinking about some of this stuff. I'm like, this is insane, the world we live in. If I told you midway through the 20... If I told you in 2016, at the time of 2016 Olympic trials, that a race in which 43-year-old Abdi Abdurrahman makes the Olympic team is interrupted by President Trump to, talk, to do a press conference about the coronavirus, I would have been like, what science fiction show are we living in right now i can't believe all these things happened on on saturday yeah so did you miss how much of the race did you miss uh it was only like five i mean i dvr'd it so maybe it seemed longer it seemed like five ten minutes tops i mean it wasn't long okay guys i have to leave in about 10 minutes so one thing i noticed i did watch the end of the broadcast i got last night just because i was trying to take some screenshots for photos to get for for our articles and I've heard that Mike Smythe is trying to get Rupp's like human side to come out a little bit. Did you guys notice this? He finished the race. He turned around. He walked back towards the start and watched the other guys come in. 
and even like was right there, like congratulating them. Had a huge hug of Abdi afterwards. Even was there for career. It was a little awkward to try to like congratulate the fourth blazer. That was awkward. But anyone, I've never noticed Rupp doing anything like that. I thought it was. I wonder if he was told to do that by Mike Smith. He he seemed more human. I, I guess it's an odd way to put it, but yeah, he seemed like in Atlanta. He spoke for like six minutes in the in the mix zone. Was giving fairly long answers for those and the the Abdi thing I do think those two have a fairly special connection because they they did the post-race interview with both of them and Abdi's like Galen's the man I love Galen he's the best and I think you think back 2008 that for Rupp's first Olympic team he made it in the 10,000 Abdi won that race I think they've just been on the circuit together for a long time and then also Abdi trains in Ethiopia with Mo Farah Mo Farah's Galen's final former training partner I mean I think they have an interesting relationship because I do think some of these other, I don't know. Yeah, it's not everyone. I don't think everyone feels that way about Galen, but certainly he's got his supporters even among the elites. So you look, but you look at like Jim Walmsley, he gave an interview after the race. He said he wasn't particularly rooting for Galen. And Scott Simmons, I found it interesting on his Twitter feed. He, he did a tweet after the race and he congratulated everyone who made the team except for Galen Rupp. So, you know, you can read into what, maybe I'm just over-reading that one, but... Incredible. We didn't talk about Walms. Incredible weekend for him. He beats Jared Ward in his tune-up for Comrades. It's an inside joke, folks, but I love the, the message. Whoever started that thread on the message board, it was amazing. I, I thought Jim did fine. You know, ran a lead pack for more than halfway. Did beat Jared Ward, so congrats to Jim. But, you know, one other interesting thing about Rupp was people were debating on the message board, and I thought this myself. I actually asked a top agent of this on Monday – you know, hey, I know you had your doubts about Rupp in the past, but you know, if he keeps doing well, does this prove he's clean? And their response was, and there's a message board thread on this too. Their response was, no. He's like, I've talked to USADA or WADA about this, and they said that the, the effects of doping last for the, the rest of your life. And I actually looked around about this, and I, I, I put this link. There's a BBC link. We'll have this in the show notes. 2013 studies showed that if you gave uh, uh, some mice some steroids and then took them off steroids, like, and then gave them exercise, like, within six days of exercise, they would, their muscles increased like 30% when they weren't on steroids. Whereas the control group, the, the mice that had never gotten steroids, their, their muscles after the same exercise only increased by like 4%. So I'm not saying Rob's dirty. I'm not saying he's clean, but I think that it's a good point to think that. You could be dirty and still benefit that from that for the rest of your life, at least in mice. Well, that's one of the criticisms people have of Justin Gatlin. He served a four-year ban for testosterone, and now he's 37 or 38, and he's still meddling at the World Championships. Yeah, but I mean, now we're in totally speculative territory, right? I mean, there's no evidence that Rupp took steroids or anything. Right. So, I mean, <sighs> coaches' reactions and stuff, it sort of shows, shows what they think. And that was another interesting thing sort of the crowd reaction to Galen. I was there at the at the uh, at the start for the introductions and uh, you know I'm probably I'm just with the crowd with some Let's Run fan I ran into and I'm like, hey let's just watch the start. And they're like, you know, and introducing the 2012 champion Galen Rupp and some guy next to me, I, I don't know this guy, just yells out, Doper And I was like, holy crap, man it was either like doper or drug cheat. I think it was doper though. And I'm just like, man, you didn't used to get that. And people, I heard other people talking about him being booed on the course. So 
And I kind of, the guy next to me, because the running community is very positive, and I said, well, in some ways, maybe this is a positive of a sport, because in other sports, you have fans, you have villains, you boo and you cheer, and you don't think about it. It's, it's like, yeah, I like him, I don't like him. There's no, and With fandom, we don't think anything of it. Calling A-Rod, well, he was a drug cheat, but like yelling at some player on some team or making them out to be something, I think it comes with fandom. So now I feel like the NLP has created such an aura about itself that it's not necessarily a bad thing. But so, yeah, I was impressed. I, I, I'm just saying everything I, I want to talk about, Rob. I'm not saying we know one way or the other. Well, not that it was shocking and irresponsible, though, for me to be talking about testosterone. I don't think so at all, considering we know that his coach had it in his bag with him at all times. And we know that his coach gave the masseuse the night off before races. And the masseuse himself thought that was weird sometimes. So I'm just saying it's very possible. And that's what I've always wondered is, was he at least getting that? And we also know that he was on Testo Boost at a minimum. It's a testosterone supplement in high school. Now, that's a legal one. But the way Magnus viewed the, the Nike lab reports was Magnus did not think it was legal. But I will defend Rupp in one other way, too. I was very pleased by how he went back to the finish line, showed a little more human side. Um People criticizing him for not showing up on Sunday morning for the mass race. All the other Olympians were there to fire the gun and help the Olympians on. People are bashing him. Folks, he was on a plane out of Atlanta back to his family 7 o'clock on Saturday night. He had already flown home. So, you know, whatever. He was gone. So yeah, He has four be- kids. He's a family guy. I'm not going to begrudge him for not sticking around. I mean, it was nice that the other Olympians did that. And if Rupp was in town and he didn't do that, then you maybe criticize him. But... He's away from four kids and his wife, and I don't blame him at all for just wanting to get back to the, to them. Yeah, I thought the hugging and cheering the guys on behind him was pretty cool. And I had heard, oh, he's trying to show more of a personal side. I think it's good. Like, if Galen gives people a reason for people to like him just besides his running, that can only help him. I mean, we already know his running, but then there's been nothing more than that, really. He's been so closely guarded, and... There's a lot of other stuff going on around him that gives a reason for people not to like him. So anything else he can give, I think is going to be good for him. Same thing like with with like Justin Gatlin, that sort of stuff. Just answer the questions and get over with it. But I'm very upset, but very thankful. Remember last week's podcast, I promised $262. Anyone who had a picture of Alberto Salazar in Atlanta. Now, Weldon has spoken to coaches who swear they was there. There's a picture on the message board of a man that, that could be Alberto Salazar. I was afraid I was going to have to pay out. And I want to, thankfully, John was not allowed. The, the press people did not pick on John to call. He was going to ask Rupp this question, is Alberto here? And John never got to ask Rupp a question directly. So John said that Rupp did speak to the media, but unfortunately, John was never the one that got to ask the question. It, it blows my mind. People are like, why do we, I, I have to wonder, why do we go to these events? Like there's thousands of people, you know, but we go because we will ask the questions that these other people are too stupid to ask. There's a rumor that a band coach is at the meet. He's now he's allowed to be there as a fan, but no one knows that. No one picks up on that. No one follows that. The good journalists do, and that's why John was going to ask that question. He just never got the opportunity. It's such a potential story that we got a call yesterday from a journalist from England for wanted to know, hey, what's the detail of this? Because this journalist who's for one of the most prominent papers in all of England. They realize a big story when they see it. So kudos to John for trying to break a big story. Yeah, there was this thread on the message board on Friday night, I guess the day before the race, saying, you know, I, 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 my friend saw Rupp. I mean, saw Alberto in the Omni, which was the Meat Hotel. And I'm like, no way. 
And I'm like, if this is true, call me. The guy calls me. He's like, I'll, I'll patch in the guy. He patches in the guy. There's two guys. One was a coach of an athlete. One was a husband of an athlete. And they both swore, like, we're pretty certain. I, we know what Alberto looks like. It was him. But I, I think, Robert, you're safe on the money because the picture is not clear. And I feel like if you were in the Omni, someone else would have seen him. And why would Alberto go to the Omni? But, you know, then everyone was speculating, like, of course he's here. Why wouldn't he be here? This is his livelihood. This is what he wants to do. He's, he cares about these people. So for now, I think we're, it's like Snopes, you know, when you fact check. I think we're going to leave it as unsubstantiated. All right, guys, I got to take the, the throwing up child to the babe, to the doctor's office. So I'm going to have to leave early. It's a little disappointing because there were, I was going to do so much more. Um, first of all, I, I, by the end of the show, I wanted to grill John on his politics choice. I know that he voted yesterday. So he voted for him and tell people to share the story of my Hillary Clinton speechwriting friend. Shocking thing she told me yesterday. But this may have to wait for next week. But by next week, won't it all be over? I don't know. And also, I was going to apologize to the loyal listeners. If you listen to the very last minute of the podcast last week, I said that there would be sort of a shocking story that would come out that we would be talking about significantly this week. And that story did not come out. So I was right about so much last week. I was right about most of the trials, big picture. But I was wrong about that. And I apologize to you, our loyal listener. But until next week, guys. Have a good show. All right. Well, farewell, Robert. We hope your uh, son is feeling better. I still, I'm still not done discussing the trials here, though. Well, then, viewership just dropped off, John. I mean, how will we go on without Robert? But there was some. We have a question here. I'm interested to discuss. We know who the winners were from the trials, and you could argue, oh, well, the losers were everyone who doesn't make the team. But I don't think you can, like Des Linda's not a loser because she ran fourth. She ran great. Can we just shout out Des's? Her consistency is ridiculous. I mean. She's run 20 marathons in her life. She's dropped out of one and all the 19 other ones. She's all run really well in all of them. Like people are like, oh, she's doing Boston. She's not taking this seriously. It's like, how dare you? Look, this woman's two-time Olympian. She's a Boston champ. Like she goes out and balls out. And I know she finished fourth. She fell short of her goal, but that was still a pretty impressive run. But I think, so you look at her, it's like, oh, is she a loser for finishing fourth? No. But to me, like maybe it's not fair to call these people losers, so, well, then this is a popular question on the message board. Who went home the most devastated from the 2020 Olympic trials? That is a tough one. I mean, the easiest answer, I'm looking at the men's, because uh, I have two ideas right there, right on my head. You always want to go fourth place. And Leonard Career is the second fastest American. Maybe he gets more marathon experience. He can do something in Sapporo. But... Uh, He's still an Olympian. He's made the Olympics in 2016. So I think from a long-term personal level, that's tempered by that. So I'm going to drop all the way down to 12th place, Scott Fobble. I mean, he's a very good marathoner. He's essentially now equivalent to Jared Ward, I think, in sort of American marathoning ranks. I mean, maybe we reassess everything after the trials. But, you know, is he going to be there four years from now? So most likely he doesn't – he ends his career with – not being an Olympian. He'll actually only be, he's only 28, so he definitely could be around next time. I mean, he'd be around, what? Opti's 43. 16 years from now. Yeah. 20, uh, add 16 years from now. What What is, what Olympics is that? Oh, 16 Tw- years from 2036. 2036. Oh my yeah. gosh. 
So, but I, so actually he should be, he should have a decent chance in four years, but making Olympic teams are hard. Chris Linsky never did it. Looks like, you know, Chris Derrick may never do it, but his Stanford teammate, Jake Riley will. So when the chance is there, you get, you got to take them because there's only every four years. Derrick's only 29. And that was the thing. Riley's a bit older. Yeah. Riley's 32. So Scott Fable, I mean, obviously Scott Fable's much better position right now than Jake Riley was in 2016. But the problem is that it's a math problem. Three guys make the team and you are su- I'm going to give 37 year old Galen Rupp a, a spot on the 2024 team. It's just, it's really tough. And I think that, yeah, I, I agree with you, Weldon. I'm thinking about who went home most devastated. I mean, Korea, you could tell after that race, he was just despondent. I mean, to see two guys make the team right in front of you, like Rupp tried to console him after the race and he just wasn't having it. He didn't come through the mix zone to talk. Korea, he's not really usually a very emotional guy, but I think you can just tell that's like to put all that work in and to race for two hours and 10 minutes and come up like three seconds short of your goal. That That is really tough, even if you do have an Olympic team to fall back on then Fable yeah because this is his best shot like he was fourth in the 10,000 at the 2016 trials now I don't know if he'll if he's just a full blown marathoner at this point and he'll just forget that and focus on training for something for the fall but even so it's going to be tough to make that Olympic team in the 10k I think this was his best shot clearly and the race it didn't go that bad but it just didn't go the way he wanted to so sure I'm sure for him he's pretty devastated and then for the women I think you have to say say because Huddle and Sisson, I do feel pretty confident. They already have the Olympic standards in the 10K. I feel pretty confident they'll be able to come back. I mean, maybe you could also argue Sarah Hall because she's 36 and she this is probably her last shot. But I think also Sarah Hall, you can kind of argue that she, well, maybe not that she should just be happy to be here, but no one really viewed her as a serious contender until a few weeks ago. And she's found this, she's restarted her career in the marathon. So yes, missing out and she's never made an Olympics. That's got to be pretty tough. Uh, but a lot of people weren't even thinking of her that seriously as a contender until the fall. Whereas Hesay, she's really looks like she's made for the marathon. Her, the marathon she had finished until this point had all been roaring successes. But now you have to wonder... Is she just injury prone? And well, cl- I think clearly she is. But then you know she has to wait four years for her next shot in the in the Olympics. And yes, yeah, she can run some big city marathons in between, but that's a long time to wait when you haven't made an Olympic team. Yeah, it's crazy because she hasn't made an Olympics either, and her pedigree in the marathons a level above Scott Fobbles. I mean, so the fact that she could never be an Olympian would be pretty crazy. So I think you're right. I mean, because, you, you know, Dez was fourth. If anyone's going to be fourth and can deal with it, it's Dez. I mean, she's a Boston Marathon champ. This should have been the first three-time Olympian. Laura Thweet was fifth and really battling with Dez and Kipiego for that spot. But this is her best run in a couple years, I would say. And Stephanie Bruce was sixth. I would already, you know, her coach, Ben Rosario, said that was her best marathon. It's not her fastest, I don't think. But on that course, yeah, her best marathon. And six, when that field, she ran competitively. You know, Emma Bates, Kellen Taylor. Kellen Taylor was injured. So there's when you're, when you're, I think the one thing for with Hesay, though, is, I mean, I don't know who else to pick besides her, though, is 
when you're not healthy, it's like, can you really blame someone? Can you be that devastated you don't make the team? Yeah, you- that, no, I think for the race outcome, she probably went in knowing that that was certainly a scenario that was on the table. But I think just in general, you know, as soon as she debuted in Boston in 2017, we're like, all right, look at her. This is our event. She's going to make the Olympics. You know, she's well positioned. And to just have that, to know that you have to restart the whole four-year cycle and you have to do it from scratch. And even if you get there, Something could go wrong. You could get, you could tweak your hamstring the week before the race or something. That's just, it's really tough. And that's why you got to appreciate these guys like Abdi and Meb and Rupp who just make Olympic teams like it's their job because that consistency, especially in the marathon, is very tough to come by. Agreed. And we were t- I was talking about Jake Riley and, you know, how he's, he'll be an Olympian and, you know, Fable may not be one and, Chris Derrick, but the Jake Riley thing's amazing. Just go back to that for a second. I mean, he last raced until last year in 2016. No races, 2017, 2018. He gets his Achilles sorted out. But, I mean, coming out of college, he was the best signee ever for the Hansons team, Brooks Hansons team. He was a 28-flat 10K, 10,000-meter guy. Well, actually, I don't know if he ran that at Hansons or in college, but either way, he was still the best guy ever to sign with the Hansons. And he had some success there, but nothing indicating this. But as he was saying, like, I, I was healthy. I wasn't healthy. I, I, I couldn't run well. So he was, like, I think 15th or 16th at the last marathon trials. And then after the track trials, he vowed never to race again until he was healthy. And that took three years. Yeah, I mean, he, Jake, he was irrelevant. You know, he's one of those guys where... That you look them up on the database, you know, World Athletics database, Latillas Depaja, they don't have any results. And you just assume, oh, yeah, that guy retired. You know, that guy was good and he must be done now. He, he just, a year ago, we wouldn't have brought up Jake Riley in any context whatsoever. There's no scenario, really, that we would have been like, oh, yeah, well, how's Jake Riley doing? He wasn't that good when he was a pro. And then he hadn't raced for two years. To say that he's on the Olympic team, it's just amazing and huge credit to jake and leaf troop for you know getting back to health and coming out and making the team running the racial life on the in the biggest racial life i mean that's just so impressive yeah i just i can't believe it. even when he came back he came back as well as he did because he ran 210 and change last year in chicago and then this one so maybe it's just made for the marathon and i think he's healthy really or, is. yeah or maybe also this then you start wondering like well, we hear the super responder to the shoes maybe he's a super responder to the shoes but a, but a 28 flat 10k guy that started to show me the talent level. You need the engine. He's, he's clearly got the engine. Um, but he went through a lot, you know. Like he moved back, at, moved back to Washington. Went through a divorce. It was just a tough time for the guy. And then he's a. And you Stanford said he en- couldn't even get a job with his Stanford engineering degree. Yeah, which is just, just crazy to me that. Like that's not possible. So he went to Colorado, and now he's getting his his masters or his his is it his masters or his PhD in mechanical I think a master's engineering. In, I think a master's in engineering. Yeah, he said he had a resume gap. It was much harder to get a good job than he thought. So he's like, whoa. And one of the things that appealed to him in Colorado was like obviously a good running environment. and They have a good engineering program, and he's like, oh, I can kind of refresh my academic credentials and get going here again. So I'm assuming he won't be unsponsored for long. Well, yeah, I guess the question is now, like, with all the success he's had in Nike, do you take a sort of below-market deal with Nike knowing that you're, you know, 
they know that you really want to race in the shoes or do you just take the biggest offer from some other company and say look this is my chance to cash in and i'm doing it um i don't know maybe on running once an olympian so they sign him like this is a free olympian a lot of people you know they judge how many olympians they have why do you have to produce them you can buy one right here it's a rare opportunity well but then again what's the value of an like isn't the whole value of like showing them making the olympic team and that sort of thing like i feel like that's part of it like sorkany great free advertising with brian schrader leading that race i mean he dropped out but he gets the sorkany singlet and shoes out on tv whereas like riley he goes to the olympics what's he going to be racing in nike singlet that's what people are going to be paying attention to not the shoes as, as much before we talk about our i don't know women's surprises should we talk about the party scene in Oh yeah, Atlanta a bit. Yeah. Well, well then, I, this this doesn't happen to you often because you know you've been to all these meets, you've been to the Olympics, you've talked to all these top pros. You were starstruck by Bob Kennedy when we saw him at the at one of the parties on Friday night. Oh, I, I was going to start with the Brian Schrader on Saturday night. But oh, okay, we'll start... we can get to that in a minute. Or we can. What do you want to start with, Schrader? We, or... we should go in chronological order. Okay. Well, that would start. That would be Bob Kennedy then. Um. No, actually, night before. Oh, the night before. Well, that was we talked to Craig Lutz. Uh, it was a nice conversation. Was I don't have any crazy well, stories. John, you later we ran into the Hoka guys, and uh, John later was not. Apparently, I did not show enough deference to Craig Lutz. John's like, that's like one of the best high school runners ever in Texas. You're from Texas. I was like, yeah, I know he's really good. He was an NXN champ. I thought you were he's younger than me. You know. Like, John Green's younger than me, but I know he's a Massachusetts high school cross-country I know who legend. Craig Lutz is. What am I supposed to do? Like, Well, you were just... No, y- y- did you know who Craig Lutz was well then? You're kind of like, oh, what's he done? Uh, yeah? No, what's he done recently? Oh, okay. Well, he's retired from running. Right. So. As a pro, he didn't do much. But did you see who won, the? I think, the 5K or 10K on s- Sunday? No. <laughs> Craig Lutz, baby. You hang with us. Hook him. Robert, Robert's taking credit for anything, so I'm taking credit for Craig Lutz's thing. We, 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 I feel bad. Ian Craig, we should have bought your beers, but checks came. They were separate. But if we bought his beers, he probably would have gone and had more and not been ready for the, for the race on Sunday. So Yeah. Um, but Atlanta's actually, the downtown area, is, it's very well situated. Everything's close together. There's a Centennial Park right there. The football stadium's right there. The College Football Hall of Fame's right there. The basketball stadium's right there. Our hotel was within a half mile walk of everything. There's restaurants. I really like the setup. Um, so it just everywhere you went, there were just tons of runners. So we just went to some random place Friday night. We went to the beer garden. Yeah. Or that was Thursday night, actually, right? No, that was Friday. So then I guess, yeah, the Bob Kennedy party. We go to the Brooks party. Thank you, Brooks, at the Brooks Hyper Run House. And it was like a who's who of the, what was this, the 2000 Olympics or 1996 Olympics? It was it was invite only, too. You had to put your name on, but it was right around Weldon's time. A lot of people from that era. Bob Kennedy, Steve Holman were, were there. Um, and yeah, it's just like Bob Kennedy, was, he's, he's like my Willie Mays, man. I, I've talked to him before, but I just didn't feel like going up to him. I'm like, because I don't think it's weird. People come up to me like, hey, can I get a selfie? I just like, uh so, you know, we were there and we actually, there's some rooftop bar at some hotel. The West End, I believe. It was, it was really cool. It was a circular bar and you could just walk around and had this amazing view of Atlanta all lit up at night. It was really cool. 
And we had to, you had to get in like the special elevator to go in and everyone was like, oh, you got to be quiet because we come from a different bar. Everyone's like, oh, you have to be kind of quiet or, you know, don't be too rowdy or else they won't let you in. So, you know, I guess that that wasn't that hard, but. Tremendous view there, but like just tons of runners from like all eras at this thing. And Julie Cully and Chris Foley were there. Chris Foley, host of Pace the Nation. I was about to go there. Julie Cully, 2012 Olympian. Olympic trials champion, by the way. Yes. Beat Molly Huddle. In the 5K. John wrote a 10,000 word piece on it, or I don't know how many. I think it was 15,000 words. It was really long. Three part series on that race, which is an amazing race. If you haven't watched it and you listen to this podcast, 2012 Olympic trials women's 5,000. One of the best races I've ever watched. Okay, we'll have to link to it. So she's blowing smoke all over John. Just, oh, you're the guy who, like, captured what that race was about. No one really got it. And, like, John wasn't even at the race. That's the crazy thing. I thought he, like, no, he didn't start working to let's run to later. After the fact, he wrote this piece. It's amazing. Like, Julie was just loving it. And then we hear that the most listened to podcast ever on Pace the Nation is the podcast episode with Robert Johnson of Let's Run.com. Little Rojo. Thank God he's still not on the podcast. Oh, did we tell Robert yet? No. I think his head would explode. If he listens to this back, his ego would just be so inflated. I mean, they've had Matthew Centrowitz and stuff on there, and he swears. Now they have to bring John on to try to boost the numbers again. Well, I think part of it, I think this was Steve Soprano's theory, was that if we link to the podcast on our homepage, that helps boost the numbers because other people are seeing it. So we'll have to have, if I'm ever on that show or you're ever on that show, well, then we need to just do a splash page and there we can get on the Let's Run homepage and that'll beat Robert for the title. Yeah. So then Saturday night, John and I work for to about 10 o'clock and then we head out. John here is some Boston. I think it's like a Boston party. Is that how it's viewed to you? It seemed like anyone in the Boston running community was there. I just got a message from someone. And he's like, everyone's here. Come to Georgia Beer Garden. And then he helps us. <laughs> you know, we, we sort of sneak in because there was a line and it was this, uh, well, you know, before, went in the back way. It was pretty, it was pretty crazy. <laughs> well, before getting in, we're in our Uber and our Uber guy pulls up too far at the stoplight and just decides to just slam it in reverse and start backing up and there's a guy w- with his girlfriend walking right behind his car scott fobble scott like hits they're like the banging hood, on the trunk yeah. banging on the hood i'm like oh my gosh like would hoka not pay us if we like run over scott fobble so fortunately that didn't happen scott my apologies he actually got in the party before us or maybe he didn't go there because i didn't know he we got were, in but he left very quickly we were still in the line yeah so we get in there, and there's Matt Taylor of Tracksmith, my college teammate, who, standing right next to him, is a, a young woman with Molly Seidel's number one, number two medallion around her head. It's her sister. She works at Tracksmith with Matt. So Matt didn't tell starts bragging that his babysitters of his kids is Molly Seidel. So he'll probably have to start looking for a new babysitter. Unfortunately. And then after we were introduced uh, to Brian Schrader, really nice guy, and he essentially gave the whole explanation of why he led the race. And he had the race—I mean, he had the lead for quite a while. What was it until 16 miles or something? He was in front, which you know, this wasn't like Luke Pesedra going to the front early and just you know dropping out very quickly. Like Brian Schrader was in there, and he's essentially the way he r- rationalized it was: look, 
I'm not going to make the team by just sitting in a pack till 21 miles and then trying to rip off four forties. Like that's not how I make the team. And Brian's a good, he's a good runner. I mean, he's like an 829 steepler. He has, has run 61. I think it's probably equivalent to about 62 flat or 61 high in the half. He ran at that rock and roll Arizona race that was short. He's won a U.S. road title. He ran the U.S. 12K champs while in college at NAU and was part of their, their good team in the early 2000s. So he's not a joke, but he was telling me, he's like, look, I felt good. I thought I could have run about 209 on that course. I was feeling amazing. I got a side stitch, and that was basically the end of my day. But he was like thinking he could have held on to the pace he was running. I guess that we'll never quite know that, but... I, I get the rationalization. When I was watching him on TV, I'm like, this guy's a moron. No one like that ever makes the team this way. But then I'm thinking, I'm like, yes, he's totally right. He's not just going to make the team by a conventional method. And remember, Brian Schrader, he's actually one of the guys in the 2016 Olympic Trials 5000 final. Him and Woody Kincaid didn't have the standard. And he was one of the guys pushing the pace to try to get the standard early on. This guy knows what the trials are about. The trials is about making the team, all right? It's not about coming in and vacuuming up people when they're breaking down at the end and getting like seventh place. It's about going for it. He shot his shot. I really, I respect that. It didn't work out, but you know, I think he went for it and he can come back and say, look, I had no, I went for it. I have no regrets. Yeah. I thought he was saying we were waiting in line. He was actually the guy right behind us. And I just, at that point we were overhearing him later. I bought him a beer, but I thought he was saying there, like it wasn't his plan. He just sort of went down a hill or something and kind of opened up a gap. And he's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, there's no reason to stop with this thing. Cause he realized that was his chance. All right. So back to the actual races themselves, John. Yeah. We, I mean, I think I've said everything I have to say about the men's race. Do you have any lingering thoughts about the women? Who was your biggest surprise in the women's race, John? I mean, Molly Seidel. That's not well, even, that's too obvious. <laughs> okay. Well, you asked for the biggest, she was the biggest surprise. I mean, the biggest surprise to me, it's not about... If you look at the people who ran... I guess Laura Thweet was quite surprising getting fifth place um, because she's been very banged up. We knew she's... If you had said, like, two or three years ago, Laura Thweet's going to get fifth, that wouldn't have been a total surprise. But based on how her last couple of years have been, that was pretty impressive. But then the rest of the top ten, I mean... Like Des, you just go down the list. Tulia Mark Seidel, Kip Diego, Des Linden. Obviously, the three... Top three was a surprise, but not surprised to be in the top 10. Stephanie Bruce, Emma Bates, Kellen Taylor in 678. That's not, I mean, Stephanie Bruce, I didn't think she'd beat Kellen Taylor, but that's not that surprising. I think Julia Conan, 10th place, that certainly surprised. She's a former soccer player, basically picked up running in her fifth year of college, and now she's 10th at the Olympic trials. That's pretty crazy. But really, I mean, if you're going to say what's my single biggest surprise other than, other than Seidel, it's so many of the favorites bombing. Hull, Sisson, Hase, and Huddle all either dropping out or finishing outside the top 10. That's the biggest surprise to me. Yeah, I mean, that was shocking and surprising. I mean, the Julia Conan story is pretty nuts. Because, I mean, no one's, I don't think, expected that. And her upside's really good. I mean, she, I think she won Twin Cities in 231. But... 2017, she ran 239, 231 last year. This was a PB4 on this course, and that's a tremendous run. So, Well, how about Sarah Sellers, 11th place, 2018 Boston Marathon runner-up? I feel like that was a lot of vindication for her, you know? Absolutely. I mean, look, look, 
Yeah, the second in Boston was very fortuitous circumstances, but she's a very pretty good runner. I mean, that was a great run for her. Yeah. So is that it? Are we trials talked out? I think so. I mean, this is we can revisit this race for the next four years, and we'll always have stuff to talk about from it. But I think for this week, it's time to move on because, believe it or not, there were actually some pretty good other races in places other than Atlanta. I think we should start with the Tokyo Marathon. The t- I mean, Robert talked about it earlier. We don't need to go super in-depth on this. On the men's side, Bahanu Legese repeats. This guy is turning into a real stud. I mean, he remember, he ran 202 behind Bekele in Berlin last fall and has won Tokyo the last two years. Bashir Abdi, who's a Mebs, it's a great day for their training group. He's one of uh, Abdi's training partners. He runs 204.49, Belgian record. Suguru Osako, he gets fourth. He's the top Japanese guy. He also breaks the Japanese record, 205.29. So that's huge for him because he not only gets the national record bonus, but he preserves, which is close to a million dollars, which he already earned in October 2018 in Chicago. He gets it again. Again, are you sure? I'm pretty sure. Darren Rovell tweeted out that he gets it again. I guess I can ask Pete Pete Julian about this, but... (laughs) From what I understand, it's anyone who breaks it before the Tokyo Olympics gets it. So... He's broken it twice. But yeah, Suguro Osako gets fourth, 205.29. And that means because he was third at the Olympic trials in September, he preserves his spot on the team. And then the results behind it, I mean, just the, the depth, it's just absurd. I mean, 17th place, 207.56. 28th place, 209.50. It's just the shoes have totally changed the game. And they've just, that's... We, changed uh, you just look at a 204 or 207 or 209 and you have to think it's close to it they're more equivalent to a 206 or 209 or 211 from a couple years ago agreed i mean the japanese have been probably like third or fourth best country in the marathon i mean depth wise they're better than the u.s third i would say third right i wasn't sure if like i guess if you're counting olympic medals though you know or major marathon. Kenya, wins. Ethiopia, you probably debate. Japan. You know, like the depth, they're probably better than like Uganda or something like that. But they were, you know, a lot of two nine, two ten guys. Now they have a lot of two seven guys. Yeah, yeah. just it's not all of a sudden the courses got easier, the weather got better. It's definitely the shoes, and the, and the Japan. A lot of the Japanese runners are more upfront about it. Just like yeah, it's, it's a different era with these shoes. So I know people hate, hate us harping on it, but once again, the main issue is uh, are, are athletes in one shoe brand's shoes favored over somebody else? And, you know, we don't... And with sponsorship agreements, you don't want someone with a shot put no one else can use or that's an advantage over someone else's shot put or something. Like, I guess they have different poles, but generally I think they're kind of viewed as being the same, right? Like, I couldn't tell you who's shot put pole somebody wears because i just no one's ever made an issue that one pole is significantly better than someone else's pole yeah i think the other interesting part here so remember a few months ago kenya named its olympic marathon team already one of those people named was amos kiprudo do you know where amos kiprudo finished in this race he was the bronze medalist at world world and where do you think he finished in tokyo gosh i have no idea he was 18th. 
But what? That's a pretty good time, right? <laughs> what time was it? I mean, he ran two oh eight flat, but he, he got beat by th- two other Kenyans. Ben and Kuroki was the top one, and two oh six fifteen and fifth, and Simon Karyuki Kari- Simon. It's not clear which one's his first name here. I think it's Simon. Two oh seven fifty six and seventeenth. I mean. I just here's why you, this is why you don't name your marathon team before spring marathon season. And maybe he could come back and run really well in Sapporo, but I wouldn't be feeling great about sending the guy who was 18th at the Tokyo Marathon to the Olympics. Agreed. I mean, maybe the Kenyan argument is, oh, he ran well in the heat, so he'll do well in the heat of Sapporo. But just there's no point to name the team in advance. Just gather all the data, and then if you want to point him now. <sighs> Then people criticize you, like, oh, you pointed a guy because of the heat, even though he got smoked in Tokyo. Yeah, I would argue you probably shouldn't appoint him to the team, but hey. Yeah, you just you want to be waiting, unless you're going to hold the trials, you want to have the most data available when you make your selection. And it's not like naming the team in April. I don't think that's really going to change the preparation that much. But the women, I'll t- point out the women's race, that was not as deep in Tokyo, but it did have a fast time up front. Lona Salpeter of Israel runs 217 to win. I think it was 217.40s. And 217.45, national record. Second place, Bohan Debarber, 218.35. And it was a two-minute PR for Solpeter up front. Yeah, crushed the course record. I mean, first and second both beat the course record. But are, this is 217. Are we just now kind of like ho hum two seventeen? Honestly, yes. I mean, that's sort of where we're at. I just see a two seventeen. I'm like, yeah, I've seen a bunch of. We're, we're living in a two fourteen world now. Well, then, so I see two seventeen. I'm like, well, she was three minutes forty five seconds off the world record. Like, if someone that's basically like someone running two or five mid on the men's side. Do I if, do I go crazy if I see a two or five mid? No. So does this mean that the U.S. women are no longer competitive? For a while, I felt like. Outside of rep, the men, the U.S. men didn't have anyone competitive on the world stage, and but the women, we clearly had Shalene Flanagan, Des Linden, you know, winning major marathons, and then Jordan Say was running fast times, but we don't have anyone under two twenty. Well, look, here's my my thought on this has been pretty consistent. Like the top American women, they they are competitive. They can win these races when everything goes well, but if the Kenyans come and bring their A game, or the Eth- or the Ethiopians, they're going to get smoked. I mean, why did Des win Boston? It was a hellish weather year. Would she have won in a normal year? Probably not. Shalane Flanagan, she's openly she told me before the 2017 New York City Marathon, if Mary Katani brings her A game, I can't beat her. And Mary Katani had you know had a period, and she was not 100 percent in that race, and Shalane beat her. I think. You know, it's just, it's very hard if, if the top Kenyans or East Africans execute and run their best, the Americans aren't going to be- get them. But the Americans, if they run their best and the Kenyans are a little off, they're absolutely competitive. So I guess you can define, is that competitive? Is it not? I don't know. But to, to say that, like, the Americans at their best were better than the Kenyans at their best, I don't think that's ever really been true. That's true. I think at the Olympics and whatnot, Obviously, world championships, the U.S. has a better chance because there's only three Kenyans and three Ethiopians. So it's sort of just a numbers game, levels out the playing field a bit. But this run by Salpeter, the eighth fastest of all time. She's now the sixth fastest woman of all time. So 
you know, the record books are sort of slowly or maybe quickly being rewritten as there are one, two, four times in the last three years faster than hers. And then the other ones are Paula Radcliffe. So. All right. Well, that was Tokyo. And speaking of record books, let's go to Boston for the BU Last Chance Invitational, which is basically becoming the Monaco of the indoor track circuit at times. I mean, the, the race of the weekend certainly was the women's 3000. It was a, there were four starters, three finishes, all three finishes in this race ran for the Bowman Track Club. All three of them broke the previous American record. Carissa Schweizer. I mean, this was a this was a terrific race. Usually record attempts are not very interesting, and some of these other races were not that great. But this one was fantastic because you had Sh- Carissa Schweizer takes the lead maybe with a K to go or something from Shelby Houlihan. You're like, okay, this is Schweizer trying to drop Houlihan. This is a strategy to win the race. It's like you got to push, keep pushing the pace and try to break Shelby. And usually no one breaks Shelby because these, she's the American record holder in the 5,000. And this time, Houlihan, she she fights a little bit to get the lead at the bell, but she gets it. And I'm like, all right, I've seen this movie before. Houlihan's going to destroy her. Schweizer was not having it. She hangs on her, and then with like about 100 to go, she sort of swings outside, comes off the turn, passes her, pulls away, runs 825.70 to set the American record. Houlihan second, 826.66. Colin Quigley third, still a very impressive time, 828.71. But we watched this race together, I believe, in, in our hotel room in Atlanta, and I, we were just shocked by what happened in this, Weldon. Yeah, it was shocking. I mean, I just, we've seen that race before, and we know how it plays out. And whoops, it didn't. And Robert was alluding to this earlier. We don't have a lot of upsets in running, and this was a shocking upset to me. So these two had raced, what, two weeks ago? It, indoors? Yeah. And Houlihan crushed her over the last lap. I, I just don't know. Um, and maybe, maybe that was at altitude and this wasn't, uh, this is also faster, like eight, just, this is the absolute fastest. If you're going to maybe the one at altitude at Albuquerque wasn't quite enough to drain Shelby's kick, but this one, she only closed in, she closed in 32, five. I think she closed in about 29 in Albuquerque. So clearly she was stretched to her limits, uh, in this race. Yeah. And then now there's talk of super shoes on the track too so we're not going there john we're not going to lie. no no yeah but but to, there was people on saturday night who said uh you guys better be ready for this story uh, yeah I mean, they were saying sprinting and on the the track so it's just i don't know so then you start wondering one thing that everyone's the reason everyone goes to be you is the track has been scientifically proven and it depends on the distance you're running, so I, I guess I should get the numbers down to be faster. Like the the bank is like perfectly optimized for certain events, so I wonder if like the women's three k is one of them. But that I mean, regardless, even it's not going to count for the everything. I mean, no one had broken eight thirty in America before, and three people do it. I mean, Colleen Quigley gets eight twenty eight, and she's an afterthought. She's a, she's a total afterthought. Yeah, nice, nice run, Colleen. Oops, wait, you would have had an American record. It wasn't for your two teammates. Yeah, I mean the Bowerman team just brought it. Absolutely, that was the fastest time indoors or outdoors by a woman. Uh, Schweizer's was by an American woman. So I don't know. I don't think you can count that as an outdoor American record, but it was the fastest time ever. 
Also, all right. Here, so there are some other highlights, what other performances worth highlighting. Josh Thompson gets the Olympic standard in the fifteen hundred. He runs three thirty four seventy seven. Uh, the women's race, Constance Klosterhalfen just blows the doors off everyone, 14.30 indoors. But then Vanessa Fraser, 14.48, she's just a second off the American record in second. That's another surprise. Emily Infeld, 14.51 for third. And then PRs for Courtney Frerichs, 15.02. And Gwen Jorgensen, 15.10 in fifth place. Anything, I mean, I, I'm, I'm shocked by the, the Fraser result as well. Yeah, where did that come from? I don't know. She's she was a good runner at Stanford, but I think you get them in a great training environment and a great coach, and you put them in a race where it's designed to run fast. And if you're good, that talent's going to come out. And credit to you know Jerry Schumacher and Vanessa Fraser for bringing it out. Yeah, I mean, but then I'm to Josh Thompson. Heard people there's on the message board. Oh, is he a super responder to the shoes? Maybe Fraser super responder to the new spikes. It's just like. At some point, we have to stop talking about it. This track is obviously very fast. It's perfect conditions, right? It's better. Running on BU indoors is better than running outdoors. And I think people are realizing that because there's talk of them putting on a 10K on the track. So it's just a great run, Tipper Cap Tour, because it was a huge, huge PB. Yeah. The one thing, I mean, the Bowman man also ran here. Matthew Centrowitz got beat in the mile. He paced the, the 3K the night before, and then he got beat by a few college kids in the mile the next day, ran... 357. Not too worried about that. I mean, it's a, basically a rust buster. But what I did think, look, this is, you can argue, all right, this wasn't fit, the USA's were early this year and it maybe it didn't fit into their schedule or whatever. It's just not a good look for the sport when you have the Bowman men, everyone except for Josh Thompson and Ryan Hill just punts on USA's. And then Lopez Lamont, Ryan Hill, Evan Jaeger, Grant Fisher, they all show up and run this 3K two weeks later, which means nothing. There's, they're not even going for a standard. It's just a 3K to get a race in. I don't know. I mean, yes, they needed to get a qualifying stand for USAs and that sort of thing, but I just it's not a good look for the sport when they just ignore USAs and then show up and run this pointless 3K time trial, basically, at BU two weeks later. Just kind of where sport is. It's kind of weird. People fly all the way across the country to do a time trial. Not in an event where you can get an automatic qualifier for the Olympics. But there must be something about running fast and the confidence you can get from that that Jerry feels like it's worth it. I, I can see how they need a really hard effort, but it's a lot easier just to go to Washington, right? But th- you can run faster. In- well, Washington, that week, there was the MPSF champs, so they couldn't run. Right, but I'm saying they could have done this time trial anywhere. I mean, forget about skipping USAs for a while, but it's just sort of this weird thing that IWF is trying to encourage people to compete but the top people kind of think they don't need to. They can get the standards, right? So we're encouraging like the second tier to go compete, but no one really cares about the second tier. Yeah. Now, there's one result we haven't talked about. Well, there's two things we haven't talked about. The 2020 indoor haps, which we're not going to talk about because honestly, I didn't follow the result. Dartmouth did win the men's 800, but uh, we have not talked about Mary Kane. I knew it. I knew it. That's a good thing Robert's not on the podcast. What would he say now? Mary Kane has no chance. Yeah, 9.07 at BU for Mary Kane. That is a lot faster than she ran at the Armory a few weeks ago, 9.24 and 9.25 in those two races. I mean, is it certainly a good move in the right direction? 
And I, st- she's still not going to make the Olympic team, but it certainly makes me think, like, she could make the Olympic trials. Most definitely. I mean, I haven't really thought much about, like, what the standards are, what the qualifying is. But, I mean, this was a month later when she ran 920, after 924 at the Armory. So this track is faster. So I don't know. I don't know how many seconds do you add for that. Let's say she could have run, though. She paced herself better at the Armory. Let's say she could have run 917. Maybe that's a 912 on this track. I mean, it's definitely in the right direction. But mentally, it's got to really help her, right? She's like, wow, I'm 17 seconds faster. But we shouldn't get too carried away. You know, she was, what, sixth place in a race with a bunch of collegians, I think. So she's still got a long way. And also, like, at the same meet, not the same race, three other Americans ran 825. Five and you know eight twenty six and eight twenty eight or something, so they're forty seconds faster than three k. But yeah, can she make the trials? I think that's probably the question now. Making the team, I just don't see it uh, unless maybe somehow at a shorter distance or something. All right, well, I think that's that wraps up BU. Anything else we want to talk about? I mean, uh, Robert said wants us to close with politics, but is there anything in between? Anything running related you want to talk about before we move there? Oh, I should, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a man and I'm going to bring this up. Saturday morning, the day of the race, we both got up early to watch Brighton versus Crystal Palace, the most important sporting event of the weekend. Brighton lost 1-0. Really, my whole family is depressed about this outcome. We're, we're in a lot of trouble. Then Watford beat Liverpool and... Brighton looks looks like they could be headed towards the relegation zone, and I just wanted to admit I'm going to be a man. I'm going to take my beating. Palace came into Brighton and beat us, and it was, you know, they did it. Never kick a man when he's when he's down, John. No comment. Keep your head up. All right, head up. Head up. I admire that. Well, then, thanks. I don't particularly care about. I I think you guys care about politics more than I do, but we can save the politics for next week when Robert's back. Okay. Because this Hillary Clinton thing was kind of crazy, but we'll let him tell it on next week's podcast. Yeah, they, they, people can speculate. Who who do you think? I voted in the Massachusetts primary, in the Democratic primary. I'll let people speculate who I voted for and see if anyone actually cares. But John, you're allowed to keep your votes private. Don't feel like pressured by your employer to reveal who you voted for. All right, everyone. Till next week. The Great Olympic Trials. Thanks to Atlanta and the Atlanta Track Club. Thanks to everyone we met, all the podcasts, the fans of the podcast and fans of Let's Run, you're all terrific. It was a blast meeting you guys and hope yeah, you keep amazing. listening and spread, spread the word. People are loving the podcast. Like We were shocked. Like We sit down at the press conference, it was open to the public, and like the two guys sitting right in front of us, both, they're not even together, turn around independently, like, oh, we love the podcast. Then we go to the shot put. There's actually a shot put where John Gadina was trying to break the world record. Ryan Krauser, are you, uh, what am I saying? I'm tired. John Gardina ran the half marathon the next day. That's it. That's it. That's yeah. it. I picked up the flu. I'm already recovered from the flu. <laughs> John Gardina. And we just kind of walk in and we're not in the media or anything. We just lean up on the rail and the guy next to us, same thing. Love the podcast. He said, he ju- I just listened to it driving up here which with his son, which I thought was like, like, that's awesome. Love it. Yep. So keep listening. Spread the word. Five-star reviews. Oh, and the tip jar for Jonathan Galt. And also, thanks again to Hoka Anani for Marathon Month on Let's Run.com.